Okay, this morning let's take our Bibles, turn to 2 Peter. 2 Peter, and we're looking today at really the last message in 2 Peter. Chapter 3, looking for a verse 11 through 18. Before I go there, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, thank you again for this opportunity to come together and look at your word. I pray, Lord, in light of your coming, that we would know as Christians what to do and that we would actually do it. You've given us everything to do it. But, Lord, we know that you want us to put the effort in to put these things into place in our own life and fairly examine ourselves to see where we're lacking and where, where we need to repent and where, what we need to change. And Lord, thank you for the word of God that explains to us what we actually need to do. And I pray in Christ's name, amen. So what we believe about what's going to happen in the future should dictate how we live in the present. Our belief about eternity demands we have an eternal perspective on life in which our reaction is practical, righteous living. I have already said that along with Christ's righteousness that he gives a believer, he also gives the believer an ethical righteousness. That's what he, the believer receives. That means the believer's nature is transformed so that he or she will manifest the character of God in an increasing way as they grow in Christ. But as we are exiting 2 Peter, there is something we must not forget. There are several things we must not forget. Number one, that you are not lacking anything to grow in Christ's likeness. You have everything you need for life and godliness. Verse number Three of chapter 1 says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Also, the source of divine power is from Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, you don't have the power. The divine power also is expressed in a godly life in which our desires are changed. We have in divine enablement to actually put into practice what God asks us to do. And you do this, and you do it in a way that you're not alone. Like it says in Philippians 2.13, for it is God who as, is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure, that the Holy Spirit helps us to replace sinful habits with godly habits that it is not human effort alone, but it's grace-motivated effort. It's not effort apart from the Holy Spirit. It, it is effort in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. So as Peter started out this epistle, we learned then that, the, that Christians are to take the human side of salvation very seriously by putting strenuous effort into their spiritual development. It's the goal of all Christians to grow. 
And God intends his children to be godly. God has given everything to the believer for godliness to actually develop. A godly person leads a life that reflects God. A godly person is growing in their desire to please God in their being, in their thinking, in their speaking, in their doing, in their desires, and in their feelings. A good way to think of the Christian life is by using a a farm as a model, as given by Martin Lloyd-Jones, where he said, we are given a farm by God's grace. We are given the implements and tools that are necessary. We are given seed. What we are called to do is farm. It is no use telling a man to farm if he does not have a farm. If he is without land, without seed, without tools, nothing can be done. But all of these are given to us, and therefore, having received them, we are asked to farm. That's what we are as Christians. Everything we need for a godly and a holy life has been given to us, and it's available to us. So this Lord's Day, let me continue to to examine the the four eternal perspectives we are to apply in light of the Lord's coming what believers are to do while waiting for the coming of Christ. Now, I've covered the, the first, first uh, one and part of the second one, but I just want to just by way of uh, recapitulation, uh, the first eternal perspective we are to apply in light of, of Christ's coming is that we should repent. Uh, we should believe in Christ without delay. Um, I remember watching the dispatches from the front, a great series on missions, uh, and one of the missionaries there was asked, well, what do you do? And he says, this is what I do. I pray, I meet people, and I tell them about Jesus. That's pretty simple, isn't it? But it's something that we ought to be doing, to tell them to, to pray, to meet people, to tell them about Jesus. Now, it may be that the only chance people have to come to Christ and be forgiven and be saved is by your witness. We ought to do this right now, according to Scripture, while God's mercy and patience is actually operative in the age in which we live, and we must take full advantage of its availability. Just like it says in chapter 3, verse 9, not wishing that any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And then in verse 15 of chapter 3, and regard the patience of the Lord as salvation. So that's it. We are to evangelize. But along with that, we are also to examine ourselves for assurance of salvation. In chapter 1, verse number 10, it tells us there, be more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. See, God wants us to make sure that we are saved. And the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is it shows that a Christian is a person who has undergone the a most vital change in their life that, that affects their being. It affects the, the seed of their personality. It affects the inner person, including their affections, their mind, and their will. They, they, in other words, they know they are saved by Jesus. They know it. And not only that, they have a testimony in which they can give an answer of the hope that lies within them. 
That's what a Christian is. They know they're right with God, not based on anything they've done, but everything God's done, and they receive that by faith. So you need to know you're a Christian and know you're saved. So conversion, salvation, that's the first thing. And that leads to the second thing, which is sanctification. And the second eternal perspective we are to apply in light of Christ's coming is that we should live holy and godly lives. Verse 11 says, Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in, a whole, in holy conduct and godliness? So we should be preparing for it by cooperating with the Spirit's sanctifying process in our life, in our conduct, in our behavior. So if we're looking for a place where righteousness dwells and our Holy Lord is present there, how can we continue to do that which belongs to the realm of sin and Satan in this world? We can't. What kind of people ought we to be? That's the statement and the question. Well, the first thing is holy conduct. Someone who is living a holy life. So believers belong to God and are responsible to live differently from their formal, their former way of life. We are to be holy in everything we do. And where are, where are we going to see it the most? We're going to see it as 1 Peter 1.15 tells us. But like the one who called you is holy, you be holy yourselves in all your behavior. So holiness means to live apart from the world and to live for God. So saints, saints are to abstain from the vices of their former way of life and place all their trust in God rather than their own selves and the world. And the bottom line is that saints are responsible to live right before God. They are to pursue holiness. Christians are no longer ignorant and should no longer be ignorant of worldly, sinful, carnal behavior. Not at all, whatsoever. That, and even the Apostle Paul said to the church at Rome in, in chapter 13, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to lust. That's how we are to live. And we're to do it right in the middle of a wicked world. So a Christian's participation in the divine nature gives believer this new ability to resist sin through union with Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit, in which the desire of the flesh is really weakened and even the voice of the flesh is dimmed. The volume is turned down and the desire to obey the Holy Spirit and please, please Christ is strengthened and then the volume of listening to the Holy Spirit of God and the Word is actually the volume goes up. And it kind of drowns out the old fleshly rebel that's inside of us. And we desire now to pursue love of God and to pursue a holy life that has a pattern of holiness in its lifestyle. So being ready for Christ's return means a Christian as Christians, we are checking our attitudes. We are checking all our choices. We are checking all our behaviors. 
we are checking all our desires. And then we're, we're checking them so we, we see whether allegiance lies, where the allegiance lies and in light of God's word, and then we make our appropriate adjustments by repenting, by putting off sin, by putting on righteousness. So we are to pursue holiness. But the second thing in our passage is that we are also called to be godly. It was like a person who is following and practicing sound doctrine. The truth will lead to a godly life. So there's a certain truth, of course, coming from the word of God, properly handled, that will lead a person to godliness. Paul, writing to Titus, said this, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. And then he says it again to a young Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 where he says, if anyone advocates a different teaching or doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of the Lord Jesus Christ, and with a doctrine conforming to godliness. What does he say about that person? They're conceited. They understand nothing. They give themselves to morbid interests and controversial questions, disputing about words. They produce envy and strife and abusive language and evil suspicions. And they contest fraction between men of depraved minds, deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of, of great gain, but he, then Paul says godliness is a means of great gain, actually, come, uh, coupled with contentment, accompanied by contentment. That means that real truth, biblical truth, will lead someone to a godly life, and it will lead them to a content life, trusting God with everything. So a godly person is not controlled or directed by trends or by high-profile people, by popularity, by cultural pressures, by obtaining wealth as a goal for life, or by possessions. No, they're controlled by God's word. They're led by God's spirit. And they desire to do and know God's will in their life. So growth in holiness and godliness, as it increases our desires, it will increase our desire to want to be in God's presence. And it also will increase our awareness to live in a manner pleasing to the Lord. We'll be very conscious about how we're living. We'll be more conscious about how we're living than anybody looking at our life. So when Christ does come, how should he find us? Well, Peter actually addresses that. There's several things he should find in our life when he comes. So we need to be working these things in as the Spirit of God's working them in, in our life. And what's the first thing he finds? Well, verse number 12, it says this, looking for and hastening and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. In verse number 12, we see that we are to be found desiring, and then we are to be found doing. That Christians, by living a holy and godly life, hurry up the coming of Christ. And yes, judgment is coming on this universe. 
However, that is not what we are desiring. We are looking beyond the catastrophe that is coming. We are looking for a freshly created heavens and earth where God's will is paramount and God's presence is enjoyed and honored. Where God is all in all. As it says in verse 13 again, but according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's what we're looking for. A glimpse of the other world, the real world, the pure and holy world that is yet going to be. That's what we're looking for. This old world can never be improved or reformed. No matter what we do, we cannot. We're not going to do it. You look, at the, look at how far we've been along in the world. How far have we become? There's more wars and division and strife in the world than ever before. And it's all before our eyes. All we have to do is turn on the news, look at the media, read a newspaper. And it's out there. We've come. We're going backwards, not forward. See, God's thrown out, and then the world takes over, and it's uh, passions and desires, and Satan steps in, and therefore we are in chaos. But believers should not be. A, A world that we presently live in is a world where there's a war on truth, There's a war on righteousness. There's a war on justice. God will set up a new world, a renovated cosmos, a perfect universe where glory is everywhere. That's why when you read the book of Revelation, you see all these jewels. You see streets of gold and and streets that have transparency to it, meaning that the glory of God is shining through everything. It's everywhere. Everywhere you go, we, we go in the new Jerusalem, will be like that. Some people have asked me along the way, when it's all over, will you remember the past? Will you remember what happened in this life? That is a question. Well, according to Isaiah 65, verse 17, the answer would be, no, we won't remember. Not really. And... Isaiah is saying this in this chapter beyond the millennial event that he described in chapters before. Because remember, the millennial event will end in rebellion. Isaiah, the prophet, sees a new creation in verse number 17 of Isaiah 65. It says, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Thank the Lord. We are not going to worry about what happened in the past. Isaiah has this eternal perspective on his mind. And why are we to have that same perspective? Because our, hope, our hopes are not to be based on this world. This world is doomed. It will end. And the gospel message is addressed not to the world system, but to people. If you don't want to be involved in the world and its ungodly system of, and condemnation, then be diligent to keep looking for Christ and striving for the coming of the Lord. Verse number 12, notice again, looking, and hastening, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. This term hastening can mean several things, but I think both are meant 
first, an earnest desire for God to come. But secondly, it means to cause the day of the Lord to come sooner. In other words, the believers have a part in bringing about the return of Christ. Now, how does one speed the day of the Lord along, the coming of Christ along? Well, we're we're doing some of that already. First, by preaching the gospel. Like I said in Matthew 24, 14, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So gospel preaching, witnessing will bring it on. Secondly, prayer. Look at Matthew 6. What do we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Your kingdom come, first thing. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we're to pray for the Lord's kingdom to come. And then, of course, by preparing ourselves by living godly and holy lives. That's what Peter is saying. Since all these things are going to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Because the more we grow in these qualities, the more we want to be with the Lord. There's a second thing that we're to be found in, in verse number 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in them by him in peace. That's the a thing we, he mentioned there, in peace. Peace describes here the state of being right with God, of having increasing joy in his presence. Peace is established in our salvation and expands in our sanctification. Peace is that state of reconciliation with God which restores sinners' joy. We enjoy our relationship with the Lord. But we know that this is brought about by what Christ has done, like it says in Colossians 1.20, having made peace through the blood of the cross. And then Paul in Romans tells us, There having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. This also means that we must have peace with both God and man. We must not be living in rebellion against God or divided against our brothers and sisters in Christ. We must be living just like God says we ought to live. So we are to live lives that are peaceful, peaceful of heart, peace with God, peace with people. And then notice in verse 14, where also Christians are to be found spotless. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless. Now remember, if you go back to the second Peter chapter 2, you'll find out that there false teachers were called blots and blemish, blemishes on society on the mission of Christ. But here, spotless is the goal of those cleansed from past sins. And this means have no dirt, have no pollution, have no condemnation of sin. That the believer is to be confessing his sins always. Confessing some pollution of sin that catches the eye or the ear, which may have caused unclean thoughts to cross his mind. And while we're repenting and confessing, we keep in mind 
It is the power of Christ's blood that cleans us and keeps us pure. Now, this is why the godliness is such a great mystery. That's what Paul said in Timothy. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, why is godliness a mystery? That means we can't fully understand it. It's because the Christian who still has remaining corruption in their heart lives lives in a world that is against them and now has the focus of demons to attack them. And yet they are enabled to live a godly and a holy life, a spotless and a blameless life. They're enabled to do that. That's God's power that does that. That's not us alone. It's God's power. That's why the things that I'm mentioning here are impossible to live without being a believer. You can't live it. Also in verse 14, Christians are people who are found to be blameless in verse 14. Blameless means free from fault and condemnation, to be above reproach or above rebuke. It says in Philippians 2.15, so that you will prove yourself to be blameless, innocent, children of God, above reproach. Where do you do that at? In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, being blameless. Even the wisdom book of Proverbs, it says the righteousness of the blameless will smooth his way, but the wicked fall by his by their own wickedness. See, Christ is the reason for these descriptive words. Jesus is the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the blemish of sin and makes us clean, like he already mentioned in 1 Peter 1.19, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish and without spot. It's all connected to Christ. In fact, when we consider the doctrine of election, of God choosing us, in Ephesians 4, 1-4, we also realize that when God chose us, he chose us not only to be saved, but he chose us to be blameless. This is what it says in Ephesians 1-4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. See, the Lord chose us not only to be saved, but to live this blameless, spotless, peaceful life because we know that we're right with God. Even the book that I'm going to next after Second Peter, Jude, it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. Why are we able to stand in the presence of God with joy? Because of what Christ has done. So then live like the master. You and I are given everything to live like kingdom children. Everything. You have no excuse. And that leads me to the third eternal perspective we are to apply in light of Christ's coming, and it's this. We should live guarded lives. Verse 15 through 17. Let me read that. It says, And regard the patience of the Lord as salvation, 
just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do the rest of the scripture, to their own destruction. Verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard. Be on your guard. So we are to live guarded lives. And aren't you glad uh, that this is written here? That there is a level of difficulty in Scripture? I don't know about you. When I go to Scripture sometimes, I don't know what it says. Even after studying it for a while, I still don't get it. There, there is a level of difficulty, but there's a way to get to what it says. I mean, if you're reading the Apostle Paul, I mean, the old and the new nature he brings up, God's sovereignty and human responsibility, these are difficult things. The olive tree and, the, and Israel's future, marriage, women's place in the church, the mystery of godliness, freedom from the law yet under the law of Christ, all those things are not easy when you come to Scripture. It takes study to handle the Word of God accurately. The Bible has all kinds of different genre in it. So we're to cut it straight by using a proper hermeneutic, a handling of Scripture that includes the grammatical, the words. The Holy Spirit wrote words to us. We are to look at the words. And then the historical context. Why was this book written? Who is it written to? And then the cultural context, too. All those things are included in a hermeneutic where the context is king. So whether we're reading parables or poetry or uh, an apocalyptic passage or a historical passage or an epistle, we use that method to get to what the original intention was of the writer. That's the job. Not to... In, uh, put things in there that are not meant in Scripture. We don't read the Bible saying, well, this is what I think it means. See, we, we, it doesn't matter what you, what you think it means. What does it really mean? That's the goal, because that's what will produce godliness. So we need to be guarded. And what do we need to be guarded from? We need to, be, we need to guard ourselves from Scripture twisters. In verse 16, it says, those who are untaught and an unstable distort the scriptures. The term distort means to twist or to warp. And that is what false teachers do. They twist, they warp, they distort the scriptures. Now, false teachers do still use the scriptures, but they mishandle them to their own destruction. So that cutting... It's straight, is abandoned by the unlearned and unstable who tend to use Scripture to justify behavior not in line with sanctified holiness. There are several examples in Scripture of pe people taking what Paul wrote and twisting it. Actually, he has to correct them on several occasions. For example, one of the occasions was in Romans 3. You don't have to turn there. Paul's teaching on justification by faith the teaching, some people said about this teaching that when a person believed in Christ, he was saved, and 
It didn't matter how he lived. And what does Paul say about that? He uses the statement, may it never be. And he says in verse number 8 of chapter 3, and why not say as we are slanderously reported and some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. Paul never said that. He never said do evil that good may come. But yet that's where people twist the scriptures. They look at it and say, look, another thing is that God's given us liberty and freedom. You know, but we have to ask the question, if God set us free, what are we free to do now? Not anything we want. We're free for the first time to live for God. That's what we're free to do. See, so Paul, what does Paul say? In Romans chapter, or Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, it says there, for you who you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And that's what people were doing. They were saying, we're free, we can do what we want. We're, we don't have any more restrictions. That's not what Paul said. So they take it and they twist it and they justify their lifestyle with it. And here's the reason why you and I are to be guarded and to keep watch. So that we are not duped by the false teachers. You know, that means that the false teachers are skilled in communication. They're skilled to get people to listen to what they have to say and follow them. They're skilled at that. Many of them are wordsmiths. They actually have a command of the language. They understand things and how to get people to do things. They're good salesmen. So if you're not watching, if you're not on guard, then you're, you're being lazy and complacent. And if you're lazy and complacent, you are more likely to fall into sin and worldliness. You are. Look at verse 17. It says, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, so we're forearmed, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. See, this is what Peter don't want you to do. False teachers believe that following their own lust and showing no restraint were signs of maturity. Freedom for them in Christ was to follow their own sensuality, not truth. Freedom for them was to follow their own lust, not the truth. So false teachers actually are feeding the strongest urges of the fallen nature of humanity to be wealthy, to be healthy, to be prosperous, to be fine. And Christians are not exempt from the duty of vigilance, but are to be guarded, to be watchful in their lives. So the subtle power of worldliness, and all that is, is worldliness, because that's all they have to go by, with its lust and its desires that are opposed to God, that the regular influence upon us by the endless flow of books and films and all the media inroads into our lives and with the complex technologies of our day that we things come across our phone and into our iPads and computers we're not even looking for. But they already figure out possibly what you were searching and they start 
getting your attention. Algorithms that map your likes, your wants, your desires, and then formulate advertisements in order to entice you to further indulge yourself in endless gratification. See, we can be duped, and we have to be careful. Many times things are subtle. Let me just give you an example how easy it is to be swept into worldliness and, yes, idolatry. This past year, we had a very heated election cycle. And the Internet and social media sites made it even more explosive and divisive. Many of us got swept up into talking about cultural issues such as critical race theory and government oversight in regard to COVID-19 regulations, about homosexuality and the LGBTQ community, about abortion, to name a few. Maybe what we didn't realize at first is how much the cultural issues had become political issues. And when these two things mix, it seems the political agenda distorts these issues and uses them as clubs to divide people, to cause hatred amongst people and division amongst people. And when it spilled over into the church, it was starting to produce the same results. Division, dislike, hatred amongst believers. That's not living blameless. That's not living godly. That's doing the opposite. And that subtly comes in, because we're passionate about our country, we're passionate about issues, and while I believe it is important for Christians to be knowledgeable and to some extent involved in these issues, we have to be careful that we don't make idols of our political parties and our cultural concerns. I believe that we should support those leaders and organizations that have committed themselves to stand against them and stand for justice and righteousness. But we need to remember the first priority of the church as a whole is the proclamation of the gospel. People need to be rescued from the power of Satan and be brought into the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. So if we lose sight of the church's primary calling, then we are in danger of making an idol of our culture and political initiatives. See, and we, many of us, subtly we're drifting right into the hands of, you know, the onslaught of media coverage. And we were picking sides. But you know why we can't, we can't pick sides when it comes to what God wants us to do? Because the world's always going to have issues. They're always going to be trumping something that really is not important to what the church ought to be. And in any way, you know what? You win something to Christ, they're going to change. Their worldview is going to change. Their, their view of people is going to change. Their view, view of race is going to change. You know what? Because we're all brothers and sisters in Christ, right? That's what is important, to keep the unity and the peace amongst us. And we don't deal with worldliness by determining that we will not be worldly, but by committing ourselves to being more godly. So we need, we need to grow in our relationship with Christ and begin to view all aspects of life through the lens of his glory. We need to, 
we need really an increase of affection for God that will really expel from our hearts our affections for things of the world and things of the flesh. And that leads me to the last thing, and it's this. Verse number 18. The fourth eternal perspective we are to apply in light of Christ's coming is that we should live growing lives. Look what it says, verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. See, we ought to keep growing onward in our knowledge of Christ. Is there any greater defense of the faith than see progress in our own personal growth in Christ-likeness and progress in our congregational growth in Christ-likeness? No. Both growth is, for both, growth is a priority. And God intends that all Christians should grow. Parents of newborns find great joy in them. But imagine the distress that they would feel if the months went by and their baby still remained the baby, smile and kicking in the crib, gooing and gogging, but never growing. That would be a, really a tragedy. See, we should not allow ourselves to forget that God must know comparable distress when we, his spiritually born children, fail to grow in grace. God's looking for growth. He's looking for all of us to grow. And really, when we think about growth, it's the great idea of growth is change. It's development. It's enlarging and gaining strength. It's showing energy and advancement and deepening our understanding of things and becoming Mature in Christ. Remember, babes, young men, fathers. That's the growth that we want to head for. But hopefully you're not in the crib, still crying, still kicking, not getting up on your own, not taking things like you ought to take, not growing. See, we Christians must add to what God has given us, increase in it, and proceed to grow in it. Add to your faith the seven virtues, qualities that he started out, chapter 1, that we read this morning. The ethical list of virtues to be lived out by the Christian that constitutes a godly life. That is what Christians are to do. And this is what they're enabled to do. And this is what we are to discipline ourselves to do in light of Christ's coming. That these are the qualities that help to form the image of Christ in our Christian character. So these qualities deserve our utmost effort. So we come full circle from chapter 1 all the way to the last verse. It's like a sandwich. He starts off saying, listen, grow in these qualities, and he ends with growing in Christ. So we're to add to our faith, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, moral excellence. No one's born morally excellent, but actually this word means to be good. And the reason why we are to be good is because God's good. Because if we're going to be growing in Christ-likeness, we're going to be people that are actually genuinely good people. Because God is good. 
See, the only way we can get somewhat of a picture is by looking at the character of God as recorded in Scripture. The Word of God speaks often of the goodness of God. As the psalmist wrote, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Teach me to be good, Lord. And we ought to recognize that the drop of morning dew gleams of his glory and goodness, that every speck of dust bears the impression of God's goodness and glory. And yes, that our great God is within us, keeping our hearts in motion and around us, giving us the air we need to breathe so we can sustain our life, both physically and spiritually. You read scripture, and what do you find? That we're not only created for good works, but Titus says, be careful to engage in good deeds. And then Hebrews tells us, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We're to be good people. And you know what? This reflects a holy and godly life when we are considering people who are weak and feeble and sick and elderly and the widow and the orphan and the young married and the young men and the young women, and, and then we're doing things like we're sending packages, we're sending letters, we're, we're sending emails, we're praying for people, we're providing companionship with them, come alongside of them and talking with them, mowing their lawn sometimes, shoveling their snow, praying with them, inviting them into our home, bringing them to church, bringing them to the doctor if they need a ride. Anything we do, we are reflecting as Christians the goodness of God. And whoever, in the name of a disciple, gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. So we're to, we're to be people that are good. Secondly, we are to be people that are knowledgeable. In your faith supply moral excellence and in your moral excellence knowledge. And this knowledge is knowledge of the significant things of our life, life and death, how to be right with God. What about eternity? What about entrance into the kingdom of God? How do you get there? It's the knowledge about God. God doesn't want to check our brains at the door. He doesn't want us to do that. See, knowledge definitely includes the knowledge of Christ, but it also includes wisdom and discernment. All over second, first and second Peter, you find these words. You, it says, be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God in Jesus Christ. In chapter one, verse three, through the true knowledge of Him who called you to His own glory and excellence. In second Peter one eight, that will render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Scripture is stressing an imperative for living life well. It's this. If we are going to finish this life well, we must know God. To faith in Christ, let us add a praiseworthy life, and to that, let us add knowledge. So we must get working on knowing God. That's the pathway to lead home. Knowing Christ and God's will enables us to live for him. And God places no premium on ignorance. A person can 
know about God and yet not know him. And this is a prayer for the saints to have a true knowledge of God, a knowledge that is personable and intimate, where God is real to us and we are conscious of his presence. To know a person means something beyond just a casual acquaintance. Knowledge means intimacy. It means personal information about. It means a special knowledge of God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit that comes and rises right out of Scripture. The special revelation given to us. So we ought to be people that are not only good, but people that are knowledgeable about what we believe. And then we are to be people, to add to that, who have self-control. We have control over ourselves. That is part of the fruit of the Spirit. It means we are able to hold ourselves in. With what power are you trying to resist temptation, to put, to put off hindrances and besetting sins, to develop godly character and bear godly fruit? Your own power? You'll never do it. The fact is that sin is the greatest power in the world. No method or power from us or from our world can overcome it. Only the almighty power of God working in the lives of those who seek it from him and through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian participating in the divine nature is able to control their greatest feelings, their greatest desires, their, their greatest cravings and passions with wise control without giving in to its strongest urges. Only the Spirit of God can do that. Those things are impossible without God's power. So when the direction of a believer's life is in accord with practicing self-control, he or she will avoid falling prey to all kinds of temptations. And believe me, I am not talking about behavioral modification. Anyone can modify their behavior in one place or another. They, maybe they stop smoking or they, they stop overeating or they stop spending or they stop taking drugs, whatever it may be. People do that all the time. The Bible is talking about transformation from inside out, not from outside in. And then we're to add, so we were to be people who have self-control. That's how you display growth. And then we are, we are to be people that have patient endurance or perseverance, meaning that we understand from Scripture, we're given the heads up, in other words, that the Christian life will have its difficulties, its troubles, its valleys, its trials, but it'll also have its victories and its battles. It will be not a smooth road uh, to enter the kingdom of God and that's what the Lord told us in Scripture. The assumption here is that walking on the path of perseverance develops a strong faith that leads to godliness, that leads to perseverance. And then we're to add to that godliness, so we are to be godlike people. I've already mentioned that. And then we are to add to that brotherly kindness. We are to be kind people kind people. And we are kind, why? Because 
we are cleansed and purified people that can live it out in our daily lives. In other words, we can genuinely love others because we have been cleansed from selfishness and hatred and prejudice, along with other defilements, defilements of the sinful heart. We can do this because we're already prepared to do that. We're already set up to do that. And then we're to add that last thing, we're to add to uh, brotherly kindness love. And this is none other than agape love. It's the biblical love that has its origins and source in God the Father, where the Bible tells us, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. And it's a love that is demonstrated by God the Son, Jesus Christ, where it says in Ephesians Chapter 5, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And then we have the Spirit of God. So the Spirit of God is pouring that love out in our heart. We don't have it there. We cannot have this love without the Spirit of God where it says in Romans 5, 5, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So we are people who are continuing learning to love God, learning to love like God. That, that will never end. We'll never arrive there. But we sure should be working our way there so we are to live this love because of the new birth. This love has a divine origin. Love is, is the badge of the, of the character of Christianity. And those growing in Jesus' kind of love will not only say loving words, but they will also do loving deeds just as he did. So the Christian faith is not limited to the initial conversion experience. It was intended to grow and mature from babes to young men to spiritual fathers. I hope you're not that baby still laying in the crib, not maturing yet, because if that's the case, you may have not been saved and given everything for life and godliness. See, God promises that you... And I can live a useful and fruitful life in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He promised that not only will you join Christ in the eternal kingdom, but your entry will be rich and rewarding. And he tells us in chapter 1, if you are growing in that way, you will be more useful. You will be more productive. You will not be blind. You will not... Be forgetful. You will have assurance of salvation and you will have an abundant entrance into the kingdom of God. I love that passage of scripture in chapter 1, verse 11, where it says, For in this way the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. See, that's what we have to look forward to. And believe me, that's motivating to live for God. So he ends it. But grow 
in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. To grow in grace. And if you really do a study of that word, there's saving grace and sovereign grace and providential grace and sustaining grace and sufficient grace. There's a grace to go around in Scripture while you're a believer. But there's also growing in the knowledge of Christ. Knowledge acquired by learning, acquired by effort, by diligence, and by experience. So the more we grow in Christ-likeness, the more we'll want to go home. The more we'll want him to come back. So that's where Peter wants us to be. So then, that is what believers are to do while waiting for the coming of Christ. We should believe in Christ without delay. We should live holy, godly lives. We should live guarded lives. And we should live growing lives. That's who we are. I pray that you would put them into practice. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again today. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness to us. Your patience with us. Lord, make us people that are learning to love like you love. Make us people who are kind, people who are self-controlled, who, are, who patiently endure, people who are knowledgeable and good. Lord, make us people that are guarded, that are growing. Lord, that know we're saved and know the areas in our life we actually need to work on. And I pray, Lord, that as you expose them to us, I pray that we would take care of them, knowing, Lord, we do it in the power of the Holy Spirit, that you desire for us to be transformed into the image of Christ. And I pray, Lord, that we would not buck against that, but we would cooperate with it. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together. together. I'd rather have Jesus. This uh, mic stand just broke a second ago, so Joe Pantuzo is going to be my mic stand today. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I think it's the wrong key. Let me try it again. <laughs> I'd rather have